Reconstruct Your Faith, a podcast where we talk about American Christianity and the growing trend of deconstruction. Hey, thank you for tuning in once again to the Reconstruct Your Faith podcast. I'm Nick, your host. And before we get started, just to remind you that you can find us on Facebook, Reconstruct Your Faith podcast. And if you want to, you can join our Facebook group where we can have a more in-depth discussion and a community um, where we can just discuss things for, of past episodes, future episodes, uh, give suggestions on what you'd like to hear on this show. That link can be found in the show notes down below. Also, be sure to follow or subscribe or just give us a rating. That'd be cool too. All right, let's get into the episode. So as you can tell by the title, today we're going to be talking about lies in the American Evangelical Church. Actually, that's probably misleading. What we're actually going to be talking about is lies that you believed growing up in church and lies that you hear out of the church. Three lies specifically. And also, I'm going to touch on Matthew West and the new song that he released that is horrible and offensive and just downright putting women in their place and oppressing them and diminishing and degrading to women. It's horrible. It's detestable. And it's also a joke. We'll get on that later. Today I want to talk about three lies, and they're all going to be uh, incorporated or around the theme of salvation. These are lies that are either directly or indirectly taught in the church, um, just depends on which church you go to. So lie number one, the sinner's prayer. Now if you don't know what that is, the sinner's prayer is, is uh, imagine you're at uh, summer camp, youth camp some church event, VBS, depending on how young you were, uh, when you remember getting saved in church or when you went to church or whatever it is. Um, The pastor would always get up there at the end of the night, and he would do what's called an altar call, and he would tell everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes, and sometimes he would call people to the front if they wanted to be saved, or he'd have them raise their hand or um, whatever it would be. And he would lead them by... Uh, a, a call and response, uh, I say this and you pre- repeat after me and you pray it, and it was something like, Dear God, sorry that I'm a sinner. I believe that your son, you sent your son to die for me on the cross, and I want you to come into my life and save me. Something I haven't listened to one in forever. They are the most ridiculous and also the most effective tools used to lead people to salvation. So as ridiculous as it is, it actually is very effective um, because the Bible is not exactly clear on how to be saved other than believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That's, that's really, and sometimes, depending on the church, sometimes baptism is required. But there's never really anything in the Bible that specifically says, this is what you do. It's just believe and confess. And so sometime in the, I don't know, 70s or 80s, some maybe before that, somewhere along the way, 
they compiled that into a prayer that you can pray, that you can teach people to say, and they are believing, they are admitting their belief and confessing their sins, confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. And there you go. Or if you grew up uh, and went to VBS, you learned the ABCs. Admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus is God's son, and see, confess that, no, confess that he died. Oh, crap. You learned the ABCs. Admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus is God's son, and see, confess your sins. No. No, confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There it is. I got it. It's essentially the same thing. But the reality is, the sinner's prayer is not what saves a person, and it has led to a generation of people being confused as all get out, and worried for the sake of their soul and and the state of their eternity, because they're not sure if they said it right. They're not sure if they really meant it. They're not sure if they really believed. They're not sure that it took hold. I mean, those are actual phrases that I've heard people use. And they spend a good chunk of their life constantly rededicating their life to God or getting saved again. And it all comes down to this like, well, I got saved. I said this prayer. And, and, And then, of course, you know, life isn't just immediately better. I still struggle with sin. And I, and now I just feel even worse about it when I do sin. And that means you're saved. I know that's a weird thing to think about, but someone once told me that the fact that you have convictions, the fact that you are aware of your sin or that you feel um, shame or guilt, the, the fact that you feel remorse for sin and you want to do better, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. And, and that really is a true thing. And, and you think about it like this, when Adam and Eve when they sinned and ate the fruit, then they realized they were naked. They ran and hid, and they tried to cover up their shame because they were aware of their nakedness. Now imagine you had no idea that you were completely exposed, and then all of a sudden you realized it. Well, then every time that you were exposed, you would, you would know it. You would know that you were naked every time after that, right? And you wouldn't like it. So, of course, you are going to be aware of when you sin, and of course you're going to feel some kind of guilt, shame, or remorse. That's because you have been, you have been awakened. Your eyes have been, have been opened to the truth. So you have been saved. And yet many people are filled with so much shame and guilt that they're worried that, the sinner, that they didn't um, say the prayer right. And the reality is the sinner's prayer is not what saves you. It's your belief. It's the gift of faith, and it's Jesus. And the main part of that is the Jesus part, because really and truly what saves a person is God. What saves a person is the obedience of Jesus to die on the cross, and then he was resurrected. And his resurrection is the power that cancels our debt and releases us from the power of sin. No longer are we bound to sin, because sin is not actions necessarily or or mainly. Sin is a power that controls us before salvation. And after God 
through the work of Jesus, has released us from that power. And then we live in grace because we still sin. And grace is there to help us get back up. So the sinner's prayer is really not what saves you. So if you are worried that maybe you didn't pray it right, or maybe you didn't believe enough, it's not a, an amount or the right words. It's, it's not something magical that you have to get the right formula. It's, it's just belief. And that is a lie on here because churches don't directly teach that the sinner's prayer saves you, but they put a lot of emphasis on saying the sinner's prayer, and if you do that, you're saved. You're good. And that's uh, the numbers game that maybe we'll get on in a later episode. Uh, lie number two, blind belief. You are not supposed to just blindly believe whatever pastor says and accept that as true. I kind of hint I kind of talked about this and hit on this in last week's episode. But just because someone has the title of pastor doesn't mean that they have all the answers and it doesn't mean that what they're teaching is true or 100% true or even completely true. Now I'm not saying that your your pastor may be up there teaching complete lies. I'm just saying that it's a lie that you should trust what the pastor is saying and that he's not leading you astray, even on accident, just because he's the pastor. You should always be like following along in the Bible or double checking, like checking what he's saying with what's in the Bible, right? Because they could be leading you astray and they may not be doing it on purpose, but that doesn't mean that we just blindly believe and accept whatever the pastor says. Well, pastor said it, it must be true. And that's, you know, and that sometimes is a lie that is maybe not directly preached, but it is taught. You're not supposed to question the authority, right? Well, here's the good news is you can question the authority. And not in a rebellious way, but you can question the Bible. You can question God. You can question your pastor. You can question your Sunday school leader, your youth group leader. You can question these people. Because how else are you going to learn? How else are you going to figure out what you believe if you can't ask your questions and, and find answers? They may not have the answers, and it may not be an answer you like, but you can ask questions. Now, understand that I know that not every church is an open environment for asking a lot of questions. And if you find that you are not in a place where you can, then find a place that you that that does allow that. Maybe it's just a small group. Maybe it's some kind of accountability partner, so to speak. Maybe, maybe it's someone that you trust in your church, uh, some kind of elder or you know another teacher, another staff member. Find someone that you can go and ask questions that you're afraid to ask, quite frankly. Because if you're not able to raise questions, even even with if it's things from social issues. Like, why don't we believe in this? Or why do we believe in that? To, hey, what do I do? Because you know what? I, I don't really know if I agree with this teaching. I don't, I don't really believe uh, that this is true. If we allow believers to bring those questions up, then we can help start facilitating the exploration of what we believe and why we believe it rather than just blindly accepting whatever the pastor says as true, and this is what we, what we believe because we've always believed it, because who knows? Maybe they're wrong. All right. The third, the third lie is the loss of salvation, the confession of sins, and living in sin 
kind of all ties together. This is something that a lot of people struggled with that I know was this this idea that we find in I think it's First John. No, I think it's Hebrews. I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, but basically, the idea is that there's a verse in First John that says, "If you confess your sins, He is willing to forgive." And there's another verse somewhere. I think it's in Hebrews. Uh, there's a few different verses that kind of deal with this idea of habitual sin is what people call it, or um, maybe like purposeful sin, like like you sin and you know it. If you sin and you know it's wrong, then it's somehow extra bad. The idea that's taught in churches is that if you continue to live in sin, you can lose your salvation. Some churches teach that um, there won't be any more forgiveness for you, and somehow they tie it to this loss of salvation, you can lose your salvation. And the truth is, you can't lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And that is actually really plain in the Bible. There are lots of verses that talk about um, not being separated from the hand of God, the love of God, that grace abounds so that when we do sin, that we're forgiven, we're still covered by grace, that we live under grace, and we're not tied to the religious obligation of the law. But you can't lose your salvation. And, and they, they, they talk about living in sin. Well, what does that even mean? I, I used to be taught that it was habitual sin, that if it's a sin that you continue to keep making, even after you confess it and get forgiveness, well, then, then it turns into you're just abusing the forgiveness, I guess. I, I don't even know. It is not true. And, and there's no such thing as living or habitual sin. We're just going to say it outright. There, there is not something, there, there's no such thing as habitual sin. If you sin and you're a Christian, you got forgiven for that when Jesus died on the cross. It's all been forgiven. There is no sinning until now God can't forgive you anymore. It's not true. Now, if you're like me, who spends a lot of their time on TikTok, well, then you've probably heard the latest song that is apparently oppressive to women by Matthew West. Hmm, weird. Didn't know Matthew West to be the oppressing, put them in their place, get back in the kitchen and make my sandwich type of guy, but to each his own, I guess. Well, that's because he wrote a song called Modest is Hottest and people are losing their minds. Yeah, this song is about teaching his daughters to dress modestly. And there's a line that says, the new fashion trend is a little more Amish and a little less Kardashian. I mean, come on, this is a joke. Guys, he is being ironic and satirical. It's a parody. He is so obviously poking fun at the extreme purity culture mindset that women have to dress in turtle. I mean, he's putting his daughters in turtlenecks. Now, if you could, I would say go watch the music video because you'd probably find out and see that it is actually meant to be informative yet funny. Hilarious with a good message, like a VeggieTales song. But no, people went and ruined the whole thing by getting super mad. They went to Twitter. They said that it was oppressive to women, that he was, you know, 
um, shaming women and that there was uh, it, it has something to do with how purity culture blames women for men being pigs and that it excuses the behavior of men while shaming women for having for even existing honestly that is the claim it is not the truth but like i said it's been taken down from youtube it's been taken down from all online platforms i can't even find a way to listen to the song except for whenever it pops up on a tiktok video it's a joke this is pretty ridiculous that we live in this society where uh, this is how far we'll go to cancel a christian artist for doing a christian thing imagine that this leads into our next set of lies. And these are lies that you hear out of the church, and they are false claims about Christianity and the church and what it teaches, what it represents. In keeping the same theme of the Matthew West song, these next three lies are going to be centered on women in the church. And again, this is claims coming from out of the church. All right, so lie number one is the purity culture. Purity culture, as I understand it, is excusing the behavior of men and boys at the expense of shaming women for having bodies. And I, I am not saying that this doesn't happen in churches, but in general, in general, Christianity does not control or have rules for women on what they can and can't wear. And I don't think that ch churches generally teach this idea of purity culture. They teach modesty and appropriateness. And here is what those mean. Number one, modesty is a behavior. Modesty is not a way of dressing but in fact a mentality and a behavior. It is humility. It's a way for a woman to be humble and, and submit herself, right, under God. And you can dress in a modest way that is very humble. How, how can you brag in the way that you dress? Maybe in another way, uh, to put it, is not bragging, but boasting. And maybe not even boasting, but advertising. And this is where we're getting into the appropriate clothing. And Christianity teaches fundamentally that we should dress appropriately and not advertise our body. Why? Because our body is for ourselves, God, and our future spouse. And so as young children, women don't need to be advertising their bodies to everyone. I don't see why people have a problem with that. And yet, the claim is that churches teach women to shame and hide and cover their bodies because they are directly responsible for the lust of men. And that's just not true. And that goes into the next lie of women's submission. A lot of people are very angry with the church because they think that the church teaches that women have to submit and that women have to um, obey men and the truth is that women are to submit to their husbands. That's the only thing it ever says about submission. I've got a great video I want to share with you at the end of this that it really explains this, and it kind of was why I wanted to share all these lies about the woman. So I'll get into that submission in that video later. But 
That's the lie, is that we don't teach that women are to obey the men. They have to submit to the authority of man. That's not true. Um, there is a biblical teaching that God wants has a role for husbands and wife, and the wife is to submit to the husband, and the husband is responsible for the spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of his wife and his family. So there are roles that God has designed in the marriage. This also goes into the other lie. Uh, women are to be silent, that women can't speak. There is a highly debated topic about women and being pastors in a church. Personally, it's not something I'm accustomed to and not something I would prefer. That's something I can say without getting canceled. <laughs> um, but there is, there is a passage where Paul is teaching that women should not teach the men. And there's some very good evidence about the culture of that time in Ephesus that the women were considered to be goddesses. The women were elevated above men, that you worship women, right? And in the pagan temples, the women were the priestesses. And, priestesses? <laughs> and so to separate themselves and to be different and to not look like that and, and to not continue that tradition or that pagan ritual, Paul was teaching that the women should be different from the women outside of the church. In the pagan temples, they should be submissive, quiet, and they should be respectable. But it wasn't about being submissive to the men. It was about being submissive to, to God and being different, set apart. Uh, I've got a video I want to share with you guys that really helps debunk some of these lies that we hear about women from people outside of the church of why they hate the church. So I'm going to play that next. All that stuff the Bible says about women, right? It's so good. What? No, it says women are inferior to men. What are you doing? Looking for where it says women are inferior to men. Oh, it's in there. It's not in there. The culture at the time treated women as subservient to men, but the gospel set men and women as equal. There's all that stuff about women having to submit to men. There are seven main passages that reference women and submission. Five of those are specific to the marriage relationship. The other two are specific to church roles. Zero of them say that all women have to submit to all men. Even in marriage, men shouldn't have more power. The most comprehensive passage on this is in Ephesians. It's a total of 12 verses. Three pertain to a woman's role in the marriage. The remaining nine are about the husband. See, 75% of the power given to the man. Uh, no. These verses explain that the husband is responsible for the physical and spiritual health of his wife, plus he's commanded to cherish her and love her as himself, and he is described as one flesh with his wife. Can you imagine how radical this was in a culture that treated women like property? So a husband is supposed to be nice. That's the bare minimum. Not just nice. These verses compare the husband-wife relationship to the Jesus-church relationship, telling the husband to be willing to lay down his life for his wife. Still, a wife shouldn't have to submit. You still have a problem with the word submit. What do you think it means that a wife just has to do whatever her husband says? No translation from the original Greek defines this word to be blanket obedience, that a wife is forcibly under absolute control of her husband. Rather, most interpretations mean to voluntarily place oneself under an authority. In light of everything a husband is supposed to be, this doesn't seem all that frightening. I just can't get on board with submission. I think it's good to remember this instruction was being written to new Christ followers, many of whom likely had spouses that weren't Christ followers yet. 
and some propose that the Greek word for submit used in this passage was a word primarily used for military efforts. It translates to deploy yourself under, and that it was a metaphor for military type support. Rather than describing women as merely submitting in terms of obedience, it could also mean something more like go to battle for. A few verses later, we read about putting on the full armor of God. It kind of supports this battle interpretation. Imagine the difference in our attitude towards these verses if we read it as go to battle for your husband versus submit yourself to your husband. So like a woman warrior for Christ? You could say that. This passage was quite empowering for women during a time where women were not empowered. First, by saying that wives could be a conduit by which their husbands come to Christ. Two, by explicitly stating that a wife should be treated as an equal by her husband. All right, so I love that video. This girl did really good at explaining the differences and some of the teachings regarding women in the church. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be doing this some more if you like it, these lies that you hear inside the church and lies that you hear outside of the church. Hey, give a like and a follow. Find us on Facebook. Give us a rating and uh, share with your friends. Tune in next week for the next episode, and catch you later to the outro.